0: You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com.
1: What's real? I'd like to know. I look around and see small things, books, chairs, gadgets... I look up and see huge things, planets, stars, galaxies. They all look different. But physics says that down deep they are all the same, composed of the same fundamental particles and forces. Then I look inside. I find feelings, sensations, perceptions, cognitions, intentions. Are these also fundamental? I am obsessed to know what's real, so I'm compelled to ask what things are fundamental. What things are real? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. Deciphering what's real seems straightforward. It is not. How to embrace reality, describe reality, categorize reality. Why is this a problem? Because reality is not as things seem. And I seem locked into common perspectives. How to break out. I seek new ways of thinking diverse perspectives on what's real first how to organize reality into its most general features that's the province of philosophy of metaphysics i go to oxford england to meet the Waynefleet professor of metaphysical philosophy john hawthorne john i've had this strange lifelong obsession to know what's real what things in the existence are really there, so my scientist friends say particles and forces, and those who are religiously inclined add spiritual realms or God and all of that. But as a philosopher, you look at reality in a little bit different kinds of ways. So help me understand what's real.
2: It's natural to. Th- Think at least naively that there's well, there are some things, and then there are some things that there aren't. So there aren't mermaids, <laughs> okay. and there are uh, electrons. Right. So there's an idea of mermaids. Right. Marriage. So there are ideas of mermaids. There are pictures of mermaids. Right. There are books about mermaids. <laughs> right. There aren't mermaids. If we just start with our sort of intuitive views, I mean, we'd put a whole bunch of things on the list. Okay. Like, Particles and voltmeters and chairs and tables and ideas about mermaids right. and ideas about statues and ideas about electrons and yeah. uh, and so on and so on. And then we get to slightly tendentious things like, like God and angels okay. on the one hand and maybe Certainly the numbers other. people would start, you know, but still if we think about it just naively in terms of there are questions, we can get a big long list just by asking There are questions.
1: Okay. What can we learn, for for example, about objects that are, for all practical purposes in their microphysics, the same, but
2: have different names for them? A lump of clay and a statue, are those the same? Again, just it's good to get straight what the natural answer is. On reflection, it's no, because the lump of clay was around a long time before... um, the statue came into existence. So that's the prima facie decisive consideration so, that has convinced lots of people so, that so, they're different things. So there really are two things there.
1: OK, so yeah. in that case, you have every atom can be exactly the same. But because the one has more temporal parts than the other...
2: Well, like, let's, let's not sort of bring temporal parts okay, in right now, right, but right. just the... The natural thing to think is there are two things there, a statue and a lump of clay. And right now, they have exactly the same atoms as parts. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe five years ago, that wasn't so, because maybe five years ago, the um, statue didn't even exist, whereas the atom was there, and it had lots of little atoms as parts. Mm -hmm. And maybe in five years' time, Uh, things will be very different. I mean, one model for that is if you slowly take away bits of the clay and replace it, it doesn't seem to destroy the statue. Yeah, yeah. But you could very slowly extract all the original clay and reform it over there, and then you'd say, oh, at that point in time, the lump of clay has... uh, those little guys as parts, but at that point in time, the statue has a completely different bunch of little guys as parts. So what you're pointing out is if you buy this this line of thinking, you could have two things that are made up of exactly the same Hmm. atoms. We've got these intuitive answers to there are questions, and then some there are questions that are tricky. There aren't really a lot of the things that we say there are. You know, we say there are holes in the cheese, (laughs) but the cheese is perforated, all right, but there aren't holes. (laughs) There is just perforated cheese. (laughs) So we're taking a liberty when we say there are holes. So there's that sort of philosopher, let's call him or her the subtractor, who's taking the ordinary there are claims and paring it down. And then there's another kind of philosopher, and I'm a bit more the second kind, who's an adder. Uh, who uh, takes the thing and then says, there are even more things than have been dreamt of by mm-hmm. naivete, not less. Like what? If you can have two things made of the same uh, atoms at the same time, why not have three? Maybe the statue is also... Maybe it's a little, very little statue that's functioning as a trigger on a gun. <laughs> so now there's the trigger, yeah. the statue yeah. and the...
0: Uh, And the the
2: material of which the trigger and the statue are composed. And we can ask the question, well, is the quantity of iron the trigger? And Mm -hmm. is the trigger the statue? (laughs) And we can run maybe some arguments that, well, you know, that trigger came into existence when it was used in the creation of this gun. But maybe that statue has been around from (laughs) uh, antiquity, (laughs) long before the gun was created. And if you buy that line of thought, you might start to think, Oh, I guess maybe there are three things in that case. And now you're sort of, you're, you're on a roll now. You, you start to see that maybe, maybe there are ever so many things and we just pick on some of them. And it's anthropocentric to think that the things we pick on exhaust all the things there are. The world's teeming with objects. That we can't, you know, <laughs> there's so many objects you wouldn't even believe it. And we just notice a few of them and talk about a few of them. That's a picture that's grown on me. So that makes me an adder and not a subtractor, if you will.
1: As for me, I follow the trail in both directions. Subtracting to see how few things might be real. Adding to see how many things might be real. But then I stop. What are these things that I seek to discern? What's a thing, anyway? I start with the constituent parts of physical things by turning to a quantum physicist who is unafraid to dive into deep philosophical waters. I go to Imperial College, London, to meet Christopher Isham. Chris, I ask myself a strange question. What things are real? So let's start really simple. What is a
3: thing? From a physicist's point of view, a thing, classically, is a bundle of properties or attributes. So a particle, say, has a position and a momentum. That's what it is. It is purely empirical. You talk about measurements, but you don't refer to a thing in itself, because you can't. So if you think about how physics is structured, you have, on one hand, space and time, on the other hand, things. And space and time is the arena in which we encounter things. But the first question you have to ask yourself, are space and time a thing? To us it's real, yes. But if you ask, is it real in itself, or is it just an empirical experience we have? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it is the latter. Um, I don't know.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a question for physicists more than psychologists. Yeah.
3: Though of course, in saying that, you're automatically cutting away certain possible answers to the question, which may be more idealist. If you ask a physicist what is a physical thing, uh, they can't possibly answer the question. I don't mean what is an electron, what is a proton, I mean things in, in general. It's not a subject a physicist could ever answer, beyond what I've said, that in classical physics, the way we talk about things is as a collection of properties. And we regard those properties as being real. So actually, we do regard this table as being here with a certain colour and so on. So that's an answer to what is a thing actually classically, is a bundle of properties. But let's not talk about the thing in itself. But the assumption, classical physics, is there is some underlying thing in itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But we don't talk about it as scientists, we can't possibly do that, Mm -hmm. When you come to quantum physics, it's very different, because there you have to ask the question in a more deep way, a more profound way. And then the debate between realism and anti-realism can become quite uh, strident.
1: So after you get thing being a bundle of properties, w- w- what is the next step?
3: Well, of course, the next step, if you're a physicist, is you measure the properties, you see. This is where empiricism comes oh, okay. in. Okay. Um, so as far as classical physics is concerned, um, you can be a realist or anti-realist, it doesn't matter, because even if you're an anti-realist, you're measuring the properties. An
1: anti-realist being someone who just is, uh, looks at the empirical data yeah, and, that's right. and doesn't infer that there's some deep law or, or, or deep essence that we can immediately know.
3: Doesn't infer that's like being in itself, as it were. Yeah. That's right. However, in fact, the things you're measuring within classical physics, it does no harm to imagine them as being real, because if you do that, there'll be no contradictions of anything that you... Experience. So in other words, it's one of your situations where you can choose what philosophical position you like. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Now quantum physics is very different. The world doesn't exist in the sense of being real. And the normal physicist's response to that, traditionally, has been the empirical one. So we talk about measurements only and and what's the average value of results and so on. Now if you ask what are we measuring then, it's an interesting question, is you're measuring quantities which no longer adhere to a thing in itself. You can't actually say that anymore, you see.
1: But if you have enough of it together on a macroscopic level, it always results in Oh, indeed.
3: And uh, one of the big issues in quantum theory for many years is exactly how do you describe the transition between the atomic world and the macroscopic world? Because what you say is absolutely correct. And that's never really been solved, I don't think, unless satisfactorily.
1: You don't know the reality at at the micro level, and and, and the Mm. micro level all... And The macro level just sums up all the micro level and so suddenly you get real things when you didn't have it in your constituent parts. Yeah, interesting, isn't
3: it? <laughs> yeah, it is a very profound question because there's no doubt about it that you cannot talk about ordinary realism at the subatomic level. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we have to somehow show is that on the average somehow this table emerges from the property of all these electrons. Mm-hmm. I mean, the normal way this is treated these days is to argue with some sort of what we call coarse graining principle at work. So somehow, for some reason or other, um, we average out the real properties of the table and, and see only the average ones, and that's what we see. So you'd have to say, if you're being honest, that actually really this table doesn't exist, at least not in a strict sense. Um, however, something called decoherence, which physicists also talk about, um, and that argues that actually all sorts of things will make the table appear as if it was real.
1: Are you comfortable with that? Are you?
3: Yeah, I have no objection to that, because it, it's a... Uh, it's, 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 it's an empirical answer, it's an instrumentalist answer. It's simply saying that, on the average, we see something. Uh, actually, always in physics, you have to somehow declare your boundaries. Uh, you can't study everything once as a scientist. So you either decide you're a classical physicist or a quantum physicist, quantum cosmology or it's particle physics. Then each one, you have your own philosophical domain, and you use that. But there's no overarching philosophical structure, you see. But there has to be. Uh, maybe, yeah. Well, that's what our mind would tell us. But one of the great things about quantum physics, of course, is it's shown us that instinctive reactions like yours are not necessarily correct.
1: My instincts not necessarily correct? Yes, I do worry. I like Chris's careful description of thing as a bundle of properties or attributes without revealing the actual thing. A leading physicist He cautions me not to look only to physics. We can measure properties, he says, but not access being in itself, the essence of a thing's existence. Is idealism even a remote possibility? Could the physical be a mere manifestation of the mental? Could the only thing truly real be consciousness? I asked the British philosopher Galen Strawson, who likes defending controversial views such as the cause of consciousness and the nature of selves.
0: Well, I think that everything that exists is material or physical, but I'm not ruling out as much as some people might be ruling out when they say that. I probably mean more by the word physical than most people mean. So, for example, I'm a complete realist about all conscious states and emotions. I think they're completely real. So, it's not, a, it's not a reductive claim. Um, part of it is just that uh, there is nothing I can think of that I th- believe to exist that couldn't be physical. Okay. But I'm very liberal in what I believe to exist, or, or rather... Imbr- of so, table, course tables exist. Uh, the fact that they're made out of smaller bits doesn't in any way sort of undermine their claim to reality. Okay,
1: but it it, it it is not a fundamental part of reality. If we cleared away all the things that um, that are constructive things, what would you be left with? What are the what are the things of which all reality is constructive?
0: Well, I, one way to look at this is to say that just is a question for physics. Physics is the you know the base science, and you know there's this zoo of fundamental particles, which probably. Uh, There aren't as many as there seem to be. And then there are maybe 10 basic properties like shape, size, position, mass, and charge. On one view, they are all just manifestations of energy. So if you want to get it down, let's just say all that exists is energy. But energy has many manifestations, including, in my view, conscious states. They are as real as electrons, as it
1: were. So that's a radically different kind of physicalism, materialism, is to include consciousness yes. on some, yes. what we say, primitive, meaning fundamental level.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you want me to sort of take up the, the position of a skeptic and, um, and say, what do you absolutely know exists? Well, my answer will be... Conscious feelings and experiences, those are the only things I absolutely know exist. So if
1: you're willing to accept consciousness, why are you not willing to accept uh, other aspects of reality, such as a spiritual world, or souls, or god, or gods, or cosmic consciousness?
0: What I'm saying is the physical is so amazing that I, I haven't yet seen a reason for thinking that these things too couldn't be physical. Physical already includes minds and experiences.
1: Okay, so wh- why is not why is your definition of physical
0: not just a word that means everything that's real? It does. Actually, that is right. And I mean, I, but I continue to use it because um, I'm talking. I am talking about the world, the things out there.
1: And so, if if I would have a a, a belief in God, and you would incorporate that into your. Definition of the physical world.
0: I would I would follow Spinoza who does exactly that
1: yeah. it's different than others who say there's a fundamental distinction yeah. and disjunction yeah. Between the physical world and a non-physical world. Yeah,
0: this is the, the standard position of dualism. There are two fundamentally different kinds of thing um, it has m- massive problems the the, the, the position of dualism, and I'm just saying, the physical is already so amazing. Give me a good reason why I have to say there are two fundamentally different kinds of things. And I haven't seen one yet.
1: Galen is a complete realist about conscious states. The only thing that he absolutely knows exists, he says, are conscious feelings and experience. He claims to be a physicalist in that only the physical is real. But he defines physicalism or materialism as, well, everything that is real. Galen rejects dualism, the claim that two different kinds of things are real. The trouble comes when you combine Galen's only one kind of thing is real with his conscious realism you wind up in idealism, where only the mental or consciousness is real. Though I might like such a world, I do not see it. Science is so good and the physical world is so real. Yet I do take consciousness seriously. How then to integrate the physical and the mental? Moreover, what else might be real I ask a distinguished cosmologist and mathematician whose worldview includes theism, George Ellis.
4: I think for a scientist, and for a hardcore scientist, there are actually four different kinds of existence they must acknowledge. Firstly, the world of particles and forces. And it's important there to recognize its hierarchical structure. We're made of atoms, molecules, and so on. And the fact that we're made of atoms does not mean we don't exist as people. A table is made of molecules, it exists as a table. That's number one. I regard then my philosophy is something else must be said to exist if it can be shown to have a causal effect on that world of particles and forces. So then the second one is the world of human intentions and thoughts, because those manifestly are able to influence what happens in in, in the world.
1: So this concept of causality
4: is not just a relationship, but has real existence? Yes, and I I like to think, for instance, of the existence of a jumbo jet. It exists because someone planned it. Now, that plan does not exist in any single person's mind. It starts off in a person's mind, but it then gets put down on paper. You can talk about it. You can draw pictures about it. And the actual concept of the jumbo is an abstract concept, which is, in, in mathematical terms, an equivalence class of representations. That equivalence class, that abstract thing, is causally effective because that's what leads, in a sense, to the existence of the physical object.
1: OK, let's go on to the third uh, class.
4: The third one is a class of physical possibilities. Animals exist within a possibility space, which Darwinian evolution explores. That possibility space underlies what actually exists. And the things that exist are constrained by that possibility space. So in some sense, it's much more real than the contingent world of things, which are all kind of messy and on that world is the world, if you like, of physical laws. In fact, physicists tend to think of physical laws in some sense as being eternal, unchanging. In fact, they have been commented many of the properties of God. (laughs) But the point is the laws themselves are not the same as the matter which obeys the laws. Those are quite distinct. The possibility space is explored by the matter and is therefore different from the matter which explores it. It underlies the physical reality, but it's strictly constrains it, you cannot violate it, so therefore it is very clearly causally effective.
1: So, now, category four. The
4: fourth category is mathematics, and I believe, like most working mathematicians, that... Mathematics lives in some abstract platonic space. Now what's the evidence for that? It's something like the following. The square root of two is irrational. Now mathematics did not want it to be irrational. They proved it was irrational against what they wanted. That is the characteristic of real existence. You find out and it's not what you want it to be. There's a platonic world of mathematical existence unaffected by human thought. We discover it, we don't invent it.
1: Are there other things in that platonic space.
4: Well, some physicists in effect think the laws of physics lie in there, some don't. We don't actually know the nature of the laws of physics at a fundamental, ontological, that is, existential way. We don't know if the laws of physics describe what happens or prescribe what happens.
1: So that world, your world four, your category four, is a very rich and diverse and and almost infinite
4: world. And it underlies physics, which is one of the puzzling things. Why is it that the laws of physics are described in mathematical terms? this relation mathematics to physics we don't understand that so but anyhow my point is that i reckon a working physicist actually has to allow all these four to exist there's nothing about theology that i think you have got a causally incomplete view of the world if you don't allow for the existence of these so
1: four. your argument would be that those four worlds four categories are applicable to everyone no matter what their philosophical that or is, theological disposition that may is be. That's correct.
4: Yeah, yeah. Now where we get into the domain which is debatable. I like my colleague Nancy Murphy believe that there is in some sense also a abstract or platonic world of Moral reality, that the, the moral reality is laid down in some sense. And this is because if you don't have such a thing, you are unable to characterize and act as genuinely evil or genuinely good.
1: So this becomes your fifth world or fifth category. It becomes
4: my fifth world, yes.
1: Now you also talk about a meta world.
4: Okay. The question is, what is the foundation of all of these worlds and the age-old theological position on this, which is that these them turn are based in the nature of God, they are in the mind of God, something like that. And I think some such unifying explanation is a satisfying explanation, which satisfies the Occam's razor of view of life, a very simple foundational view which underlies the nature of these things. Now that relies on all sorts of other kinds of argument, and the thing which is absolutely clear, this cannot be proved to be correct. And there's no way it will ever be proven by science, by philosophy. It will always be something which you adopt as a faith hypothesis.
1: What things are real, philosophy distinguishes Things that do exist from things that do not exist. Things that are the same from things that are different. Things that are simple by subtracting parts from things that are complex by adding parts. From physics, things are that which have properties or attributes. Yet physics cannot unveil the deep essence of things as they really are. On the claim that there's only one kind of thing, I'm ambivalent. I'd wish a world privileging consciousness that could give us meaning, perhaps purpose, but evidence is slim and wishing is futile. I like augmenting real things with human intention because of its causal effectiveness and possibility space because it constrains what is actual. I try to imagine all ways in which reality can be. Only then can I seek understanding, if understanding is possible, and sense deep unity, if deep unity exists, coming closer to truth.